The buttons have been pressed. The YouTubes are on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. I got to tell you, um, we've entered into a whole new world Don't you of dare engagement. close your eyes. Dear friends. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, people can see. People can see us. Like, there's no, there's no more reading placards. Um, there's, there's no more, you know, recording in tank tops. I mean, it's like a Man. big deal. Now, um, there are many of you who listen. There are a few of you who watch. And I, I think that that is the right choice, to be honest. Although, one YouTube commenter said, nice faces, 9 out of 10. That's pretty good. And I thought, that's, that's as good as I have ever received or could hope for. <laughs> I'm going to turn so, off comments for every other video after that. Yes, after this, it's just it's going down. But anyway, we do have a YouTube channel. What is it, Timothy? It's just youtube.com backslash voxology. We will not be talking about this as much forever, but for now, it's a big deal, <laughs> guys. It's a big deal. We have cameras. It's our new toy. Professional lighting. Tim is editing video, and he's uh, using um, some sort of magic to smooth out our faces and de-age us, which is fantastic. Um, so anyway, yeah, if you want to watch The Sausage Made, as they say, go to the YouTubes. If you just want to hear the voice and imagine how it is that we look when we're talking, I'd keep it there, to be honest. But anyway, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Um, Timothy... I, I am a firm believer that you get what you deserve in this life. And so, Tim, tell us about your week and then tell us why it is that you got cursed with a thousand plagues this week. So what happened? Well, last Sunday night, my daughter was up all night throwing up every 15 minutes. So we did not sleep that minutes. night. Every no. 15 minutes. Yeah, we wrote it. Oh. We kept track of it. And so I had to cancel classes on Monday and stay home with her yep. and then home with her on good, Tuesday. Good yeah. And some really heinous things happened that I will spare the audience from on those days. And then on Wednesday morning, I woke up sick, I had to cancel. It was the first time I've ever had to cancel a whole week of class. Dang. And, um, and then later Tell that us day, about it. Tell us about it. What was the ratio of orifices let's just say a hundred percent okay so every everything was involved yeah it was okay. a rough one yeah and then my wife came home from school early sick and Ooh. then my son that night started throwing up and then that next morning with my entire family sick and me still on the mend i let the dog out to go do now we know now we know who, who did yeah and i walk out there and i see him looking over to his right and there's a skunk on our lawn. Oh, man. And I start yelling, and I run yeah. at him to grab him, but I was too slow. Yeah. And he got that skunk. Or, I the guess... The skunk got him. The skunk got him. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have never had to clean skunk off of a dog before while having the stomach flu. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like... At that point, it's kind of comical. Where it's just like, all right. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah, I yeah, love it. So Mazzy stayed home again today because she wasn't feeling good. And I was like, whatever, oh, let's just write the whole Lord. week off. Seriously, it is just a total wash. Yeah. So that begs the question, of course, hey, Tim. What did I do? Yeah, what's, what's, what would you say is the moral failure that contributed to such a week? I mean, just let's go ahead and give us some options and we'll vote. You know, I started selling crack last week just to okay. try to that pay off the bills. Yeah. That could be a, that could be a thing. I don't know, yeah. but it sure seemed like that in the middle of the night. Like, <laughs> it is. I mean, when kids get sick and there's nothing you can do, and they're the just worst. like clockwork, and there's nothing that they're even barfing on. Um, I mean, that's just it was terrible. Yeah, it is terrible. Well, Tim, I had a much better week than that. I'm very which, happy for you isn't saying much, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had such a literally crappy week. Yeah. And uh, you look, you look thinner to this week. I'm not going to lie. Definitely lost some weight. Yeah. Yeah. I can, 
Listen, if you ever need to borrow some, I've got I've got a few that All I can right. loan out. Um, dear listener, thank you for tuning in. <laughs> and you're welcome. And you're welcome for that graphic replay of Tim's week. Um, we are delighted to be with you today. We're going to continue um, a second background conversation about the book of Revelation. But um, every now and again, I mean, we get lots of emails and we love the emails and we don't always respond to them in a timely manner. FYI, me primarily. Um, but there are some that, that come in that we can only answer kind of on the air, so to speak. And uh, this one was from somebody who, I mean, the first, the first sentence or two is just utterly heartbreaking. And there's no way a sterile email reply does justice to the intensity of the question or the circumstance. And so, hello, I'm sitting here emailing you from my bed with my wife beside me. For the past three years now, my wife, who's 27 years old, has been battling Crohn's disease. Her condition is one that can be absolutely debilitating, affecting her diet, sleeping habits, and her physical energy. Along with her body not being able to process certain foods, her immune system, the thing that God uh, created to protect our bodies, literally attacks herself, not being able to differ, uh, differentiate between healthy tissue from infected tissue. Because of this, every four months, my wife is hooked up to an IV bag and essentially attached to chemo. Um, but it does it, it, because it suppresses one's immune system. My wife was diagnosed after she lost a key family member and spiritual mother. When I was laid off from my job and her sister discovered that she was uh, three months pregnant. She was 25 at the time. This was also the time we stopped or we had planned to start having a family, which was stopped dead in its tracks when her doctor said it was unsafe for her to have children. Sorry, this is so long. There's a point to this. I'm asking because my wife only minutes ago rolled over and said, I don't understand why I'm so sick. Why does God not heal me? His word says he makes all things for his glory. What is the glory of me constantly being sick all the time? And then she asked, if she gave up on God, would I choose her or God? Jeez. Mike and Tim, I don't know what to do. I've asked similar questions. Why, when he was the one to come heal the sick, make the blind see, have the lame walk, will he not heal my wife, my 27-year-old wife, who most days is so exhausted after work because her condition that all she can do is sit on the couch. Why? So, um, first of all, and most importantly, I mean, we're so freaking sorry that you have to deal with that. Um, I, when I first read it, I just asked, uh, and he graciously allowed us to read this on uh, an episode Um for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think loads of people ask similar questions. And number two, there's just, there's no response over email that can do, you know, justice. And there's no response even that we're going to give that can do justice to this. But there is a tone of voice and inflection of speech that at least come, can come through in kind of this arena that isn't true elsewhere. So, um, so first I just want to say, and, and Tim, you know, chime in whenever you want here, but man, we are so sorry that you have to deal this, deal with this. And in answer to the question why, I always want to talk through the bad answers to that question um, before we get to the good answers to that question. So bad answers to that question that I would completely disagree with are things like, um, because you don't have enough faith. I don't think that's the way this works, even remotely. I think life is infinitely complex, and um, I don't in any way, shape, or form believe that blaming the people who are suffering is the way to go, nor did Jesus. Uh, Jesus had plenty of opportunity to blame those who suffered in a religious system that sometimes taught the suffering deserved it, and he explicitly you know, overturns that idea and rebukes it. So bad answer number one is you don't have enough faith. Bad answer number two is you did something to deserve this. And that's what I was playfully kind of poking fun at in, in my you know, question to Tim about what did you do? Because there right. is, there is a, a calculus that exists in certain Christian circles where um, sickness is seen as the result of sin 
and um, and something spiritual in nature, and you've let the, the the physical illness is symbolic of a spiritual illness that you have, and somehow those things are connected. And so we we speak against that nonsense as well. I also want to, uh, if if I might, gently push back at this phrase: God creates all things good for His glory. I don't, I don't, and maybe that's a direct quote. But I don't. I think God creates all things, and God can redeem all things for good. But I don't think that everything exists is good or used for God's glory. And I know there are some Christian brothers and sisters that live in a theological system that says everything that happens is God's will on earth and happens for his glory. And I just want to let you know that whatever barfing went on with Timothy is insignificant compared to the barfing I want to do all over that statement <laughs> and, the, and, and all over that idea that somehow God, everything that happens is the will of God on earth. It is not God's will that your wife be sick and exhausted. It is not God's will that her body turn against itself. It is not God's will that you sit in agony and wonder why. It is not God's will that you um, have to delay having a family uh, or even if you can have a family. None of that is God's will. And so just this, this idea that God creates everything and everything is good, well, that was true in the garden. Um, and that will be true at the end of the story. But in the meantime, there's a whole lot that is not good. And so if there's a why, theologically, the, the only correct answer is I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why he doesn't heal you. I've prayed for more people than I can count who've not been healed. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, I, if all of us die at some point, then obviously all of us will pray for healing and that answer will not be done. I have no idea how many people were not healed when Jesus was roaming the earth, so I just don't know. Mm. Um, I do know that there are three things taught in the Bible that I hold on to. The first is that God is good. And God never needs evil to bring about good. He never does. Never. And his will for humanity is expressed in Genesis 1 and 2, and in Revelation 21 and 22. The rest of it's triage, right? Um, the coming of Jesus is triage. I mean, all of it is dealing with us in a fallen state. So none of it's God's perfect ideal will. Second thing, if God is good, the second thing is that evil's actually evil. Like it's really evil. It's not like good disguised as evil or evil that will be turned into good so it's not as evil as you think. No, evil is actually evil. <laughs> evil is, suffering is evil. Um, I was talking to a woman at our, our church just last week who had had tried after several miscarriages to have a child she was holding her infant in her arms as she's telling me this story and we sang a song talked about surrendering and she said what is it what does that even mean to surrender my little boy and and as we talked it became obvious that the idea of surrender for her meant that she would be okay if her little boy died that's what it meant to surrender <laughs> and i was like what are you talking about where do you get that idea, right? That's not, I mean, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm saying that playfully, and I didn't say it that way, um, uh, because I know where that idea comes from. Right. But, oh my Lord, I mean, when you read the Psalms, Lamentations, the Minor Prophets, even the words of Jesus of Nazareth, there is a protest against evil in the world. There is, a, there is real oppression and real bondage that goes far beyond um, earthly forms of citizenship or slavery or whatever. Like, like there is something that Jesus is liberating people from that includes sickness, but is even bigger than that in biblical categories. And all of that is evil. Evil is real. There's, we don't have, we're not called to pretend. Read the Bible, particularly um, uh, passages in the Old Testament and the lament of Jesus over Jerusalem. And there, there is... There is incredible permission to be uncomfortable with evil. And so what you're doing when you're asking why and um, what if I wander away from God, I mean, that falls into the category of lament. 
there is a biblical category of lament where uh, it assumes, the lament assumes a covenant context, that God is good, and that evil is evil, and that assumes God wants to do away with evil, so why isn't he in this circumstance? And it's different than complaining, because lament um, understands and counts on the goodness of the Creator God. And, and the lament is addressed to the Creator God. It's actually a form of worship in the Psalms. So evil is evil, and we don't have to pretend that it's, that it's good. The tricky part comes, God is good, evil is evil. The tricky part comes in this statement, where we're told that God can redeem anything for good. And in fact, he's so good at it, that sometimes we think the evil was put there to get the good. But God is good, and he never, ever, ever is the author of evil. Ever. I mean, that is just one of the clearest teachings of the entire Bible. And I get, there are Old Testament examples. Well, didn't God unleash the spirit of destruction? And man, we could have some great conversations about those things, because I don't, I don't think those are as clear as, you know, kind of what we think it is. And that's great. We can talk about that another day. But for now, I just want to, if I'm sitting next to your wife and, and she is wanting more than just presence and weeping next to her, you know, a bedside, um, and she wants to talk, well, well, how does all of this work? I mean, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to talk about the goodness of God. I'm going to talk about the evilness of evil and that God is so good at redeeming evil that it can look like he needed the evil to do the good. But he's never the author of the evil. That's never his will. Um, and that God's actualized a universe where he wanted human cooperation. And so much of the evil that we experience, we've unleashed on ourselves. There is a natural evil in the fallenness of the world. And there's some sort of darkness that the Bible talks about consistently in the spiritual realm. I don't know how all those things fit together. And I don't know why it is that God would choose to heal some and not others. I have no clue. Um, and so we would sit and we would pray and we would pray and we would pray and we would pray. Whatever it is that you're feeling, angry, sad, I want to turn my back on God. I want to run away from God. Um, all of that, all of that is welcome. Uh, there's not a, not a damn emotion that we're going to have that isn't somehow already in the, the, the voice of God's people crying out to him um, in mercy. And so, so I don't know, and I'm so sorry, I don't want this for you. You don't deserve this. It's not fair to be 27, to be 25 when you were first diagnosed with this. Um, it's not fair, and you don't deserve it. And I don't understand why it's happening. And could God, could God bring good out of it? Sure. But he never needs evil to do good. So, so I would look for the fingerprints of God's work, um, but I would not equate those fingerprints to this being his will for your life. Anything you want to add to that, Mr. Stafford? No, this is, this is the toughest. This is the question. Every, every theological trail... If I feel leads to exactly this. this. Yep. Why yep. does God yep. allow these things to happen? And why does he not intervene when scripture yep. seems like it says things in that direction? Yeah. So that, and when we do the next Gombus episode, I told Mike, I want to come at them hard with questions about the problem of evil and suffering and why those things are what they are. Um, one thing that I think is interesting is I, it was, Rachel Held Evans, right? And she said something to the effect mm -hmm. of like, this is the, I choose this faith. Do you remember how she worded that? It's something this, about like, this, this is, this is the story I'm willing to be wrong about. Yes. That quote. I've been kind of holding yeah. that loosely, yeah. like up here as I go through these conversations. Cause for me, that's largely what deconstruction has been, has been like saying, okay, I don't want to just say that all the cliches got old. A long right. time ago and then i finally was just like i don't want to live in a cliched i don't want to live a cliched faith or a faith that's built on cliches yeah and some of those cliches are what, like what you just mentioned that god will turn anything for good and everything is god's will and it's like yeah but you couldn't ask any questions past that because no that's one had right. answers past that's that right. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. That, so well, that, well, that was the answer. Yeah. So you're instantly you're instantly in the wilderness, yeah. without anyone offering to help because they close the door. It's a hard stop on those phrases. Yeah, that's good. So in exploring kind of like suffering or or exploring that Rachel Held Evans idea, and saying, okay, I'm gonna put I'm gonna step into this faith, this ideology. This is the one that I'm gonna be willing to be wrong about. And then say, okay, I've made that decision, and now I'm going to explore figuring out everything that you just listed, Mike, like the that there is evil in this world. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. What does it mean that that evil coexists with a God who is good? Like mm-hmm. those are simple questions, but they're really, really big. Yeah. And so sometimes in my lamenting, a big first part of my lamenting is just like, what the hell? Like, this is not fair. This is not cool. I don't understand. Where are you? Why are you doing this? Yeah. Um, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I had full screaming matches at God when my mom got cancer in the middle of the um, uh, middle of the pandemic. pandemic. I was just yeah. sitting in my car screaming like this. I don't get it. I don't mm-hmm. understand this. I don't mm-hmm. understand how or why or, you know, and there was no God didn't come back with a rebuttal or a, you know, a nice card. It was quiet, <laughs> but there was some healing in the lamentation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's, I mean, I'm not a scholar, but I would say that that's one of the reasons why a lamentation is exalted as a form of worship is mm. I think God respects it. So I, I don't have answers either other than for me, leaning into the lamentation, leaning into the fact that I've chosen this has given me kind of like a, um, passport to explore the Mm. mysteries of all of this and i want to understand it i want to understand those questions i don't know if we can understand them but i really want to or at least understand the the field that we're playing on yeah yeah now that'll be great for gombas so dear emailer thank you for trusting us with this and you know i know even in asking the question there's no answer that ever satisfies other than, you know, Crohn's disease be gone and right. it would happen. And so, but um, one of the things I learned about grief long ago is grief demands to be seen. Hmm. And so one of the ways we honor grief is we see it in others and we acknowledge it that life is different. I remember I've, I've experienced... Um, uh, my dad, stepdad, and father-in-law all dying within three years. And it was just odd. Um, and people who've walked this road say all say the same thing. It's just odd that the world just carries on. Yeah. You know I mean? There's nothing. It's not even a hiccup. You know, my life feels radically different, but it's not different for anybody else. And so to stop and to name it and to see it and to feel it together, that's... One of the most important things the American church doesn't do. Um, or Americans in, in general. Uh, you, boy. Hashtag facts. That's <laughs> my kids would say. You're spitting facts. That's so good, though. That's why I've always really appreciated these ideas of um, sitting Shiva and like yes. really just like we're going to sit in this together and let it be what it is and not. Yep. We're um, not going to clean it up. Yeah. We're not going to polish it up. We're not going to. We're just going to sit and name it yeah. and without any pressure to clean it, we clean it up or protect God's reputation or whatever. So, no, I love that. I love that. I'm drawn to that. And in, in, in the own small suffering through health scares, anxiety and depression, um, the birth of a special needs child, I have seen the crumbs that can be produced that are good. But never once did I think, oh, this is God's will. I remember I we found out our son had Down syndrome three months before I was born, and an elder in my church was like, isn't it amazing to know that God loves you so much he would entrust you with this kind of child? And <laughs> I, was, I was a little horrified at that sentiment, <laughs> that God has some special storehouse of birth defects, and he just waits for just the right parents. I mean, how narcissistic is that? Good Lord. We live in a fallen world. Genetic defects happen sometimes. And I mean, in Gombas, I mean, this is a, one of the biggest rifts we had with him was just, is God in control? 
And uh, the answer is depends what it means by control. If, we, if, if he means, if it, if we mean control in the sense of power and the sense of um, organizing and administrating everything, the answer is no. Other yeah. wills are done on earth. So we genuinely hurt. I mean, t- today we're recording uh, on a Friday, and it's the Friday before the the, the video is being released of uh, five black uh, police officers beating a black man to death. And it's so brutal that, I mean, uh, incredible steps are being taken by the police department to prepare us for how awful this is going to be. And did that guy deserve it? Was that God's will? Or did God actualize a world where evil people can do real evil to each other? And um, so, I mean, all of those questions, my goodness, we could spend hours, but we, we just want you to know that it's have. so, and we, and we will, um, <laughs> that it's so important uh, to just pause and we see you and we're sorry. Um, and um, I would love to hear your responses to our responses and, you know, keep the dialogue going. We're going to do a hard left turn into... <sighs> Revelation. Um, so last episode, wait, you we, know, did uh, you it, real quick because this will yes, lead it a little bit. Did, did you did you see, um, our buddy Ted Cruz <laughs> and all of them going nuts on the on Xbox making their their machines carbon neutral? No, no. What's the Xbox is there? releasing a new right? Xbox is releasing a new uh, console that runs on less energy. Even in, it runs on less okay. energy than even in sleep mode, and it uses all these okay. carbon efficient cool. parts, all this stuff. So it's like totally, yeah. it's going to reduce power, all this kind of stuff. And Ted Cruz and a bunch of those guys came out, and they're just like, first they came for your coffee, then they came for this. Now they're coming for your video games. And I was just like, man, it's got to be exhausting to consistently be against everything and not for anything and then i started thinking about that because that's not how it seems it's a wave after wave of like this is what we're against now this is what we're against now this is what we're against and i saw this quote on uh, twitter that said if satan tempted you in the wilderness with the power to take down your political enemies and enact your social agenda would you take it jesus oh Oh, so as we're going into this conversation, I was kind of like, yeah, I was like, this is because I would. I mean, my initial thing was like, oh, yeah, if I was it was like, hey, all this nonsense that's going on, all these things that I that I think are incorrect that are happening to people in our country. Yeah. If I could wipe it all away and enact a social agenda that takes care of people, of course, I'd be dramatically tempted at taking that option. Yeah, and that's oh, most yeah. of the conversations that we have in the political arena. So I thought it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. as we lead into a Christian nationalist conversation. Yeah, that's conversation. so good, Tim. I'm glad you brought that up, Tim, because we, you know, introduced the revelation um, idea as an idea that kind of undergirds. Man, we're going to say that word a lot. Um, the, the the mythology and ideology of Christian nationalism. And, um, you know, I, you cannot, it, it is impossible to walk the way of Jesus and be continually outraged at people. You just, <laughs> you cannot do it. Are you sure? Because I think I'm doing it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I've read the Sermon on the Mount and, um, you know, there's... I mean, and, 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 and we're not talking about like being outraged at things that we should be outraged at. Right. But there is a manufactured outrage that is, you know, kept white hot um, in, uh, in various degrees all over our culture. And that's, that's, that's the part. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Because it isn't exhausting. It's energizing. It, it, it's one of it the does. ways people medicate their pain is... The enemy is always encroaching upon us. The enemy is always threatening us. They're, they're coming after us and our stuff and our beliefs, and we need a strong man to stand up against them. And then um, the Bible gets somehow co-opted into that narrative, and you get some of the ugliness that we get. 
And one of the key features um, of support is a reading of the Bible that is, you know, grossly distorted, but um, it, it appeals to revelation in some ways that we want to, you know, kind of undercut. So um, we introduced some comments from a guy named Michael Gorman. We talked about four different ways to approach the book. Um, but I want to kind of detail a little bit in this episode the theological... Man, I start rocking. That's going to be really annoying for people on... Yeah, if you guys... Yeah, I rock. Whenever I'm thinking, I rock. I almost got kicked out of the ACT in high school because I was just sitting there rocking back and forth. I have no idea. No idea why I do this. But Just when now my people brain know gets, this is when, when Mike's in his groove. This is what the groove looks like. Is that what the groove looks like? Just yep. like this? So yes. So you do it counter. We should do it counter just to make people seasick. That's but anyway. Hard. <laughs> it's, hard. it's hard to get the timing so, down. Sorry. So so I want to um uh I want to detail the theological system that um is represented by the Left Behind series because this <laughs> view is so influential in American culture. It's so influential we don't even see how influential it is because it's been the predominant way to understand revelation. And anything else feels like liberalism. That's how good a job we we did at this. So I want to do some history. I want to do some defining. I want to do some theological sort of assumptions. And you know, we'll try to keep it, you know, at half an hour. We'll see. <laughs> so so it's not it's not super horrible. But I want to introduce you to a theological system called dispensationalism. Say what? Say what? Dispensationalism is a theological system that was popularized by the Left Behind novels, but it, it actually started and was developed by a guy named John Nelson Darby. He was a Plymouth brother and pastor in the 1800s, and he wove verses of different books of the Bible together to create a scenario that would talk about the church and how it relates to Israel and how it relates to God's coming back and the end times and all those sorts of things. And this theological system was not at all something that was, you know, popular, um, but it became popularized because of several things. First of all, there was a guy named Cyrus Schofield. And Schofield, I know, what a great name. He wrote um, a, a Bible. I mean, he translated a Bible. I don't even know if he translated it, but he added study notes to a Bible that was already in existence and became the first study Bible. And the study Bible were the interpretive notes that, um, that were next to the text. And many people didn't know the difference between the text and the notes. Oh, dang. And so uh, Darby's notes were included in the Schofield reference Bible. And that became like holy writ Whoa. for a, a lot of folks. That Schofield reference Bible was first published in 1909. All right. And, and, and sold, you know, in those days, like billions of copies, not literally, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh, in the 1970s, Hal Lindsey got a hold of this system and popularized it in a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And that sold billions of copies. It's a great title. And, yes, The Late Great Planet Earth. And, and it took Darby's system and found corresponding uh, reference in contemporary events. And, um, and it just, I, I remember the book. I read it. Um, I remember I was in college in the late 80s and I read something about like the the coming Armageddon or something. Like it was so, I mean, it was just everywhere. Um, and then of course the Left Behind novel started in 95 um, and that, you know, presented Darby system through fiction to the tune of like 80 million copies. But but little little did we know, there, were, there was a, an entire kind of evangelical edifice built on this understanding. Um, so like the Moody Bible Institute, Dwight Moody was a dispensationalist. 
my first Bible was called a, a Ryrie Study Bible. Charles Ryrie, he was a dispensationalist. Many of the evangelical colleges and seminaries in America were built <coughs> and founded by dispensationalists and, and promote dispensational systems. Can you like, define dispensationalists? Yep, quick, I'm going just in to in just okay. a second. I want to show how wide it is. Gotcha. Uh, Grace College, Grace Theological Seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, Philadelphia College of the Bible, Moody Bible Institute, <coughs> Dang. Northwestern College, Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, Denver Seminary, Western Seminary, Criswell Bible College, Biola University, Talbot Theological Seminary, where I went, Multnomah School of the Bible, William Tyndale College, Southeastern Bible College, Capital Bible Seminary, Liberty University, and countless others. And not only that, but the most popular Bible teachers of the previous generation all espouse dispensationalism. Right? So, so we're talking about W.A. Criswell. And again, we're not going to know these names, but my dad listened to these people. Mm. Criswell, Richard Dahan, he used to get this Daily Light devotional that was written by the Dahans. Warren Wearsby, Charles Stanley, who's still around, Adrian Rogers, Jack Van Impey. These were the, like, before TBN was the thing, these were all the people who had huge platforms. Chuck Swindoll, Billy Graham, Louis Palau, Bill Bright, James Dobson, Jerry Falwell, John Hagee. Everyone that was on TV for an entire generation espoused dispensationalism. And so it became, dispensationalism became identified with biblical fidelity, and any other view of the end times became identified with being liberal or being soft on scripture. All right? And now, crime. <laughs> let's talk about what dispensationalism is. All right, John Darby. Um, based on his study of Isaiah 32, evidently, um, believed that Israel would fulfill all the promises in the Old Testament given to Israel were not fulfilled in Jesus because Israel rejected Jesus. And so there remains a future fulfillment of the promises given to Israel. Uh, and not just the promises of like forgiveness of sin and return from exile, but like the land promise, the economy promise, the, the, the preeminence promise over the nations, that all of those were not fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus offered the kingdom to Israel and they said no. So then Jesus offers the kingdom to the church, the time of the Gentiles, to use Paul's phrase. And, um, and so now the Gentiles, the non-Jews are flooding in, but there are two distinct peoples of God. The promises given to Israel, which yet to be remain, yet remain to be fulfilled. And the promises given to the church, things like we sit at the right hand of the father. Um, we, um, our identity in Christ, uh, we've been heirs and we're now sons and daughters and all of those sorts of things. Those promises have been fulfilled, fulfilled in the church through Christ, but the promises to ethnic national Israel have not. So those are unclaimed prizes that are just kind of yep. there and they need a, they need a host. They need a fulfillment and they're fulfilled in the real world. These are not fulfillments in some heaven somewhere. Right. These are like Israel will become a nation defined by its borders in the Bible. It will become a power over the nations. It will have an economy where the wealth of the nations flows into it with God as at its head. All right? Like <laughs> it's real to world. See where this is going. <laughs> so so it's so one of the main facets of dispensationalism is that God works in different ways in different dispensations. Dispensation just it st stands for a section of time where God works one way. And mm -hmm. then a different dispensation is how, how God works a different way. And, and one of the easiest examples of that is, well, before the fall and after the fall. Before the fall was the dispensation of innocence, right? They were in their pre-fall state right. um, theologically. And then after the fall was the dispensation of conscience, where we were, we were left a bit still with God's guidance, but we were in a, an entirely different way of relating to God now because of the fall and the rupture that happened around sin and death. Make sense? Mm -hmm. So no one, no one disagrees that God relates differently to humanity over the course of the biblical narrative into, into today. 
the, the real distinctive about dispensationalism is that it takes that idea and uses it to say that God has two peoples in view and two entirely different plans of redemption in view. A plan of redemption for Israel, which is different from a plan of redemption from the church. Now, some people in reaction to this now say, hey, the church has, has superseded Israel and replaced mm-hmm. Israel. And I don't think that's the right teaching either. I think what Jesus was doing was renewing Israel around himself. And that has Old Testament precedent, but we'll get to that later. To understand the dispensational system is to understand first that there are these different dispensations and, and, and there's disagreement over how many there are. Some say there are three, some say, some say there are as many as eight. But secondly, and most importantly, that those dispensations present Israel. It's like God through Jesus offered the kingdom, the literal kingdom of God to Israel. They said no. So God paused that. He stopped it right there. And then we've lived 2,000 years in the age of the Gentiles, where Jesus and the church turned to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have flooded in. And then we're going to be, the church is going to be raptured out of earth and the nation, the physical nation of Israel will now come all fully to Jesus um, through something called the tribulation. I'll get to that in a second. But are you with tribulation me? Tribulation just... force. Exactly. Yeah. One so the there's like books. different seasons of a show and God's character is a little bit different in every season to keep it spicy. Well, they wouldn't say his character is different. Humanity is different. Humanity is different, but the so, way that God so, interacts with humanity is a little bit yeah, different. So, so the way God interacted with humanity after the fall, but before the Mosaic Covenant, right. was different than after the Mosaic Covenant. Every season or ends the on a little bit covenant. of a cliffhanger. Yeah, Look yeah, what they exactly. did, what's he going to do? Well, well, here, okay, now, this gets a little more technical. So the book of Daniel is central to dispensational thought. And... Um, Daniel, in Daniel 9, talks about 70 weeks of years as a kind of a prophetic calendar. And I'm going to argue that's misunderstood. But the idea is a week of years is seven years. Okay? So what God did when Israel rejected the kingdom, he held off on the 70th week. So, so the idea is like there was a time, there was a timer from when Daniel wrote about 70 weeks of years to when Jesus came. And when Jesus came, there was one week left to be fulfilled of that 70. That uh, uh, Meaning there's another seven-year period in the future. I know this is, and I'm not communicating it well, but the weeks of years are seven-year periods and there's 70 of those which is 490 years. And if you do certain creative math, you get when this was written to the time of Jesus. And dispensationalists will say, because Israel rejected Jesus's offer of the kingdom, the last week of seven years is now on hold and is in the future. And that when the rapture happens, that last week is like re-engaged. It's like a basketball game with seven seconds left on the clock. But it's seven years. We've lived, yes, we've lived in a two thousand year time out. Okay. And when when God comes and raptures His church, the last seven year week is now kicked off. Everybody better that stretch seven, after taking a two thousand year time out. T- yes, but that seven hammies. years is a literal seven years. And the first seven year, the first part of that seven years, the first three and a half years, is a time of peace and prosperity for Israel where the temple gets rebuilt. They make alliances with world rulers. Um, a new like global faith is formed and economic commerce is really held by a monopoly that requires us to, re- to get some sign of allegiance in order to participate in it. And then at the middle of the seven and a half years, the Antichrist reveals himself as Antichrist, and that is a time of great persecution. And during that seven years, all of Israel is saved. 
And Israel stands at the head of the armies of God in the battle of Armageddon, which closes out the tribulation and inaugurates something called the millennium, which is a thousand year period where Jesus will literally reign on the earth. All Israel will be saved and all of the, all of the promises given to Old Testament Israel will be fulfilled. Satan is then released. There's another battle and then there's final judgment. That, that's the dispensational scheme. Now, there are lots of assumptions in this scheme. First of all, that, that, they're, that they take a futurist, obviously, approach right. to the book of Revelation. Right? That, that there's still a seven-year period of time in the future waiting for us. Secondly, the big, the big argument for the dispensationalists use is that, hey, we take the Bible literally. Like, and, they're, they're, and what they mean by literally is we take these promises given to ethnic Israel as literal promises to be fulfilled to ethnic Israel. Now, in Revelation, though, they'll, take, they'll say they take it literally, but, but you know, you'll see in some of the writings that the four horsemen aren't literally four horsemen, but they represent other things. And so it's one of the critiques of dispensational thought, at least in its popular forms, that it's very selective in its literalism. Sensational. Yep. Third assumption, of course, is literal fulfillment in an earthly Israel where God's return has real world consequences. And and it's the idea, and, and you can see how they get there, because the Old Testament ends not with how do we get these people to heaven, but when will God come back as king right. over Israel? It's the big cliffhanger. Right? Yeah. At the very end of Jesus's ministry, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Dispensationalists say the reason they were asking that is because they knew Jesus didn't fulfill all of the promises to Israel. But he fulfills promises now to his church. And during this church age, which is a dispensation, um, Israel is left to kind of fend for herself, but when God returns, Israel, the, the promises to Israel will be literally fulfilled. And so the reason why dispensationalists are so uncritically pro-Israel is pretty obvious. Right. Right? Israel has a massive part to play in the end times. In fact, when Israel became a nation in 18, uh, or excuse me, 1948. When Jesus in, in the book of Matthew talks about, hey, a generation will not, um, a, a, he was talking about the destruction of the temple, but dispensationalists read that as the signs of the end of the age. Right. And so Jesus talks about a generation will not pass away until they see these things. And so the argument was, well, generation is 40 years and Israel became a nation again in 48. So it meant that God was coming back in 88. And I, there was a book that was very popular, 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back. In 1988, I'm sure they're Spoiler great. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, and so, and so let, let me just ask you, Tim, is this, is this making sense? The, yeah. the scheme, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about dispensationalism, yeah. okay? And there are loads of people um, who are smart and Jesus-loving, who believe this is the best way to interpret the Bible. And there are different, shockingly, there are different kinds of dispensationalists. Um, the original kind of dispensationalist maneuver, um, uh, that lasted until, I think, the mid-50s. And then there, there became kind of a revisionist school where they acknowledge that there is some continuity between Israel and the church, but that there was still two different programs. And, and now there's something out there called progressive dispensationalism. And we can get into that, but this, those nuances aren't how revelation comes to us. Revelation comes to us and has been filtered to us through the lens of left behind and the late great planet earth. And the popular versions of this. So even though there are really intelligent scholars who would say, no, no, that's a distortion of what I teach. That's not how the church has received this teaching. Yeah, no way. No one wants to sit and listen to some old dude explain proper context when you could watch like a Hollywood version of what totally. e- what evil is hunting you and how you're going to defeat it. <coughs> we love yes. a good story. Even the we stuff love. with like, this is you know so full of counting dates and kind of numerology kind of stuff 
that stuff's always so fascinating. Like I love a good yeah. mystery. I love a good like Da Vinci Code to figure out. You know, every seventh letter of the seventh verse of the seventh sun of the seventh sign on the seventh day. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, I need a cough drop, Tim. Well. <coughs> Try to subconsciously make sure your face stays in frame. You texted me that. Yeah. When you get going, you dipped all the way down here. Oh, I do. Okay. All right. I'm proud. All right. I'm up. I'm back. <laughs> Again, sorry if you're not watching. Now, um, it, within dispensational thought, there are big, di big disagreements over the timing of some of these things. So... The millennium is a thousand-year kingdom where Jesus reigns over and on the earth. And then there are dis discussions about how the tribulation relates to the millennium. And then there are discussions about how the rapture relates to the tribulation. And so if you are like uh, pre-millennial, um, uh, the idea is that the 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 millennial kingdom comes after um, the tribulation. The tribulation is pre; it comes before it. So premillennial, postmillennial. Like that's like Gen X. Uh, yes, yeah, that's funny. There's postmillennial. There's amillennial, which means you know we're in the millennium right now, where Satan is bound for a thousand years, and that's a symbolic number. We'll get into all of this stuff, but when we're talking about dispensationalism, we're talking about left behind. That is just a bit of some of the theology that undergirds it. Again, the advocates of this would say it uh, differently. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm misrepresenting dispensationalist thought, particularly as it's been filtered to us. Now, problems with this way of thinking. <laughs> I, I think there are legion, but let me just highlight a few. First, it greatly misunderstands the purpose of uh, prophecy in the Old and New Testament. The purpose of prophecy is never to calendarize, which is that temptation, Tim, you were just talking about, where we want to get out our charts and graphs and put some dates on the calendar, baby, and figure this sucker out. Um, Jesus, in fact, warns against calendarizing all over the place. And somehow our dispensationalist friends have ignored all of those warnings. Well, imagine if you're the group get... of people that has like a, a direct line. And so you have the power to predict. Right. And you have to let everybody else know, like, we have the power. We have this special right. gift. Like, Yeah. One of the things that scholarship has noted that carries over into Christian nationalism is that the Left Behind series really promoted the idea that that experts in government science military they're all wrong right. and the common christian who has this blueprint is the one who's really in the know yep so it's the redefining of cultural elites and and there's something really attractive uh, that we see playing out in all this conspiracy theory that, that that appeals to that same thing and i think totally you know revelation in its left behind form became a, a giant conspiracy theory. It's the one world government, the biochip under the skin, the leader that looks like attractive and cooperative is actually somebody who's totally different. And, right. and that's not far from saying Joe Biden is a sex trafficker, the head of a global cabal of sex traffickers. And or a lizard Donald Trump person is here to, or a robot. Yeah, it's that same. But, but I think dispensationalism fostered that line of thinking. And has made it more permissible for Christians now to, to see. And I'm not saying that, that we should uncritically embrace everything our culture says is true. I'm not saying right. that at all. Or that everyone who's an expert is right. But, but there was this like distinction between those on the inside of Bible knowledge and everybody else. And we were the kind of superior ones, even though we were made fun of. Yeah. Um, and we'll be vindicated in the end. You will be that, persecuted that is, in my name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, one of the gifts of dispensationalism and one of the pieces of why it's so attractive is that it says that God is sovereign even when the world is chaotic. 
And so there's like a built-in comfort to, oh, okay, the world's getting worse, so we're on the path. God's at work. You know what I mean? It's like it, you're able to reconcile the great chaotic evil of our world with, no, God's good, and this is all part of his plan. See, and that obviously taps back into the conversation on the email at the beginning, and this idea that, and we've talked about this a bunch because I've, we've all seen a lot in churches where people talk about like deliver use like deliverance language and mm -hmm. that God has um, answered my prayers of healing but didn't answer the prayers of anybody else in the church so what does that say you don't even have yeah. to say what does that yeah, say yeah, yeah. the subconscious weight of that is that I am not good enough that God does not hear me that God does not care so that's right. kind of one of the things that's saying too is about wandering out there and kind of holding on to some of these truths and testing some of them is that like that's a really that is packaged as a very loving theology mm. that god wants to love you wants to take care of you that god is love yada 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 but then it's packed it's delivered in this way of like it's it's just delivered so dangerous and so in such a condescending mm. us versus them um but in obviously popular that, forms it yeah and then it trickles way, yeah. into the church where there's yeah. that silent person who's struggling with, you know, pancreatic cancer and no one knows and they want to be healed and they have the faith that they're just mm -hmm. pleading and it's not happening. And then yep. we get these weird theologies of like, you know, yeah. I don't know. So you, you definitely see how it just like, it's like a, it is itself a cancer that has just like mm -hmm. spread crazy. And then you hear rhetoric, that rhetoric on things like January 6th and weird places like that. Absolutely. That, Absolutely. And, and we're now, we're now we're banking on it. And we see, I mean, that's what Ted Cruz, right? I mean, right. they're coming for your Xbox that they out there, those godless pagans. Now, <laughs> obviously, uh, like it, it, like authentic Jesus following isn't going to be the most popular thing in the world. Got it. But to be, um, to be wrapped in conspiracy theories where we're constantly generating outrage at perceived enemies is about as antithetical to the way of Jesus as you can get. Yeah. You know? So so there are positive contributions, right? There's a view of sovereignty that brings comfort. There's motivation for personal salvation. You don't want to be left behind. But I think that those positive contributions are actually just devastating. Seriously, what a it, terrible place to start from. The premise to start from is you don't want to be left behind. Holy. You don't want God to turn his back on you. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and there's a, I mean, there's so many problems with this. There's the um, taking the Bible literally. We spend a lot of time talking about that's not how you take the Bible. You take it literarily. And so you take right. it literally where it's meant to be taken literally. Everywhere else you take it according to genre. And we're going to spend some time going over Revelation genre because the whole battle for Revelation and understanding it is fought there. We'll just get to that in a couple episodes. Um, but secondly, Revelation views, or excuse me, dispensationalism views the Bible as a, as a jigsaw puzzle to fit together. And when they cobble all of the pieces together from all the different books, they end up stealing and distorting how those verses fit in their original context. For totally. instance, there is nothing in Daniel 9 between verse 26 and verse 27 that suggests there's a 2,000-year time out between the 70th week and the 69th year of weeks or week of years, <laughs> right? Or, or re like older dispensationalists will make a big deal because the church is mentioned in the first three chapters of Revelation, but then not mentioned again until the end of the book. And they'll say, well, that's where the church is raptured. And you're like, that's not, it's not what we're meaning. You know I mean? that Like they're just in hindsight. And I, and I know people will say, yeah, yeah. Okay. So all these people are deluded and you know better. I'm saying there has been it's in our massive amounts of great scholarship that has never been marketable. And uh, that directly calls this whole narrative into question. And just because something is popular doesn't mean it's true. It's like NASCAR. Now, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to offend our NASCAR, NASCAR folks. I had 11 pages of notes for this, Timothy. 
All right. Let's see. What time are we? We're at an hour. Don't you worry about time. Well, I've got this. You've got seven years. <laughs> All right. I'm going to do this last little bit. Do it. So Michael Gorman, um, in his book, um, uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly. Oh, I got that book. Yes, you did. Way to show off your reading haul on Facebook. It was a big nice. haul yesterday. All came in yesterday. That's awesome. Um, he identifies, I don't know how many problems. I think it's almost 30 problems with the left behind approach. And I just want to read these because some of them are so great. Number one, um, it treats the Bible as a puzzle to be pieced together into a script about the future. Um, that's a huge problem because that's this not how the Bible is. This is just reading Revelation with this? Yeah. Okay. Yep. The critique is reading Revelation in the left behind kind of way. Gotcha. Two, it claims to be literal, but is only selectively so. <laughs> a better description is correlative, meaning it is in search of precise correspondences as opposed to either literal or analogical. Number three. It misunderstands the nature and function of prophetic and apocalyptic literature. That's genre. We're going to talk about that. It grossly misinterprets just about every biblical text it utilizes. Prophetic does not mean predictive, and apocalyptic does not mean literal. Uh, number four, it finds aspects of the second coming that are not in the Bible, such as the two comings of Jesus, the rapture, and the Antichrist in Revelation, literally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's insane. Ra Rapture is not in the book of Revelation. <laughs> or Antichrist. It imposes a foreign That's 19th wild. century theological interpretive construct into ancient biblical texts, dispensationalism. It assumes, I don't know what number one, that we are on the brink of the rapture and tribulation and that that's all that really matters. Yeah. Nothing else matters. And it misses the most important theological movement of revelation, which is not temporal or calendarized, but theological. The focus of God is the Alpha and Omega. And that's repeated three times at the beginning of the book and the end of the book. God does not move from rapture to millennium, but from God to God. Theological problems with the left behind approach. It misunderstands the New Testament references to end times. For the New Testament, end times is the period between the first and second coming of Jesus. So we're in the, we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. Number two, it reduces the gospel to God and Jesus and the rapture and the glorious appearing, um, amounting to an unhealthy preoccupation with details and events surrounding Christ's second coming. Third, it reduces the primary reason for conversion to fear. Fourth, it reduces discipleship to A, faith in Jesus' death in order to avoid being left behind or destroyed, B, evangelizing others so they won't be left behind or destroyed, and C, correlating, quote, Bible prophecy with current events. Yeah, um, that's the whole thing uh, right there. <laughs> oh, number five, it's escapist and, there has, and therefore has no ongoing ethic of life between the times, between oh. the first and second comings. There's no compulsion to love one's neighbor, practice deeds of mercy, or work for peace and justice. Oh, six, it is inherently militaristic. Anything resembling pacifism, international cooperation, or disarmament is satanic. Wow. This is huge. And believers are called to participate in a literal war that is guaranteed victory by the return of a conquering Jesus. Yeah. Mm. It is inherently anti-Catholic. And I didn't get into this, but it, it talks about Revelation uses the images of a city, of a city set on seven hills, which is Rome. But they don't understand Rome in its first century context. They understand Rome as the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. So it is inherently anti-Catholic. The only good safe Catholics are those who are basically Protestant. Number eight, it fails to see the church as a peaceful alternative to empire rather than its chaplain or war-making opponent. Mm. And then here, here are some that I had never thought of. Political problems, and we'll end with these of the left-behind approach. Number one, it's uncritically pro-American. 
And, and I look in vain for any reference to America in uh, Revelation. It privileges, number two, the state of modern Israel in an uncritical way. It is suspicious of anything to do with the work of the United Nations or international organizations. It sees wars in the Middle East as part of God's plan and, in effect, declares them to be good. Yeah. Number five, it inculcates a survivalist and crusader mentality into the minds of its readers. So this is Gorman's devastating, really after good. all those problems. This is a thoroughly misguided approach to the Bible, theology, and Christian life. It could be passable fiction at some amateur level, <laughs> except that it really is theology, and it's dangerous theology. This misguided, the misguided character of the series becomes thoroughly warped, especially in the last two books, with the ultimate or with the portrayal of ultimate faithful discipleship as killing for Jesus' sake and the corollary depiction of Jesus' warrior. This makes the overall series dangerous spiritually, theologically, and politically. So what we're going to do next episode is we are going to start from a different place. Um, and we're going to let the book speak for itself. And, hey, yo. Uh, yep, shocking. So we're going to talk about the genre of Revelation, super dry, but the most important podcast we'll do on the topic. Do you know, out of curiosity, when he wrote this list? Um, let's see here. Hold on. I'm, uh, I'm looking for it. I think the book was written in 2014. Okay, so fairly recent. published, so it was 2013. Yeah, I wonder what he'd say now. Nope, 2011. So, I mean, imagine how he'd write this today. Seriously. <laughs> Holy moly. And let's show again the number of post-it notes. All right. <laughs> Any last thoughts, Timothy John Stafford? No, I think it's all very interesting. Uh, well, it's interesting, to say the least. I will Undergird your loins. Keep... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right dear friends hey if you are a fan of the podcast and you've not done these things would you do the following for us would you like <laughs> would you subscribe or would you smash that subscribe button on youtube <laughs> hey guys hey guys every youtube video starts with hey guys every cooking with hey Mazzy guys starts with a, hey guys up? every cooking with mazzy Hey guys, so goodbye guys. <laughs> we are so delighted to be a part of your life. Hope this is helpful and we will talk to you soon. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on Instagram at voxology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for walking the long road with us.